Welcome to this talk from Emmaus Road Church in Guildford, UK. Thank you for joining us on the journey, wherever you are in the world. You can find out more about who we are and what we're up to at EmmausRoad.com. Hello. Look at you all. I got some really indecipherable notes. Don't see them. I wrote them at three this morning. In a kind of one of those blue crayons that don't really, they're good for drawing, they're really crap for writing. Um, okay. I spend most of my life with, with people who have no faith at all. I, I don't really hang out very much with Christians at all. Um, and uh, I'm an artist, and what strikes me is that they never, my mates never really talk about my work. We never really t they do things, I do things. We never really address the whole work thing. Except recently, I did a... Um, do we have the image here or not? We don't have the image, do we? From this morning, no? We don't have an image. Okay. Do we? Oh, there. Okay, so this is... Until, th until I started doing this, which is... I'm working on this in just up the road, actually. So it's, it was meant to be for Battersea Power Station, but they turned it down, um, which is charming. But it was going to sit, it meant to be sitting in the middle of the Thames. Uh, it's no longer going to be in the Thames. I don't know where it's going to go. But the point is, my, my atheist friends, um, the first one, when I showed it to him, he said, he just used the F word about five times, and said, I really like that. I hate your faith, but I really like that. I hate Christianity, I really like that. Christianity is bollocks, but I really like that. And I said, why do you like that? He said, I like angels. And I said, well, why, why do you like angels? He said, well, they're always doing good things. I mean, I've never seen an angel be a knob. You never hear, an, you know, yeah, this is what I say. I, you, you never hear of an angel being a judgmental knob end, do you? I mean, Christians, Christianity's sort of not great, but I like angels. And so I, I, I entered this whole world where a lot of women, particularly the gay guys, really get off, not get off it, but they really like this. <laughs> like, they're like, you know, I like this image. And so I then decided to really, like, in the last six months, I've been really trying to find out what it is that they like about that, but they hate about God. So that's been my journey. And they say that, essentially, they're saying that they'd like to be loved like that. They'd like to feel that possibly they could be kissed from the back of the head by an angel. And if they exist, they'd like to be loved by an angel. And I then say, have you thought about the idea that if God exists, he'd feel the same way? And they say, well, clearly he doesn't. And I say, well, why, why do you think that? And they say, well, just because my experience of life, experience of religion, experience of church, experience of indirect experiences, seeing them argue all the time about sexual orientation, even though the world is bleeding. Just endless crap. So I said, so, so, I, so I'm in this sort of dialogue with them, generally, about why they yearn for this. And I'm suggesting to them quietly that perhaps this one is closer to the nature of the divine than the one they've decided, to, they've chosen, just through their experience. Um, so that's what I'm on with at the moment. It really fascinates me. And, and I, you know, as a person, you know, here I'm standing in a microphone, kind of blah, 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 struggle. 
I think every human does, whether Christian or not, atheist, agnostic, whatever you are, struggle with the idea that you're unconditionally loved. Maybe, you don't, maybe you've got this complete, full sense that you are in the embrace of the divine every minute. I don't. But one of the, the things that help me, are, there are many things, but particularly, I'd say, um, friends. I'm just going to talk about a bit of friends. I think friends, the whole friendship thing in the church is, is slightly relegated. The marriage thing is, oh. But the, the friendship thing to me is like huge. And uh, there's a friend of mine here. You probably, you, you won't have met her. She's just arrived in the church. But she, where, Lex, where are you? You're hiding, aren't you? She's the back. Alexa is right at the back, feeling annoyed and ashamed that I'm saying this, but she came with me. So. She's been my neighbor in Brixton for years. And... I would say to you of her that uh, she, when I've messed up, screwed up, feel low, feel depressed, hung over, gotten messes, you name it, when I've gone round to Lex for a cup of tea, she's viewed me with the eyes of complete grace. That she's never gone, oh, you know that dreadful Christian thing where they go, <sighs> do you know that one? If you haven't seen it, you will. It's that, what do we go? Oh, really? There's never that. It's always cup of tea. That sounds shoddy. That experience. Accept people as they are. I got and I got a goddaughter who's a super bright atheist, and she was talking about some sex fetish that a friend of hers was into, and I sort of laughed and looked shocked, and she said, "Why are you shocked? Are you are you shaming her fetish? I wouldn't do that, Charlie. Aren't you a Christian? You're not meant to do that, are you?" She stared at me, and I thought, you're right. I'm really sorry. She said, yeah, you just have to learn to accept people where they are. Stop it right now. If you're a Christian, stop it. It's your job to accept people as they are. Number one, that's your thing, isn't it? I thought that was your thing. And I left breakfast feeling really challenged by a 16-year-old clever person. So Alexa does that for me. And... She accepts me, and that helps me understand the grace of God. She is a reflection, albeit minuscule, of this grace that I sit in and should enjoy and should free me and should accept me as I am. Trouble is that we're not very good at that. We're shockable. So we hide, particularly, paradoxically, in the one place where grace is meant to be at its richest, so we in the church play the game. We do the religious game. We have the religious face, the Christian face. We sing the right songs. And we, turn, we don't tell the truth of ourselves to the tragedy of Christ, who I think would say, I love you as you are, mate. Anything. But we've developed a subculture that can't, struggles to do that. If we can develop one that does the antithesis of that, which embraces you as you are, we've got something incredible that the world would go, I love that. That looks like an angel kissing the back of her head. I'd like to be involved in that, because that's me. That's an everyday man walking, being kissed. And I'm an everyday man, and I want to be loved like that. And I think our role in the world is not to, I'm sure you know this, is not to judge, but to love. And for me, Lex has showed me that. And one of her things over the years, I've known her a long time, is U2. I don't know if you know U2, the music. But she'd always said for years, I really want to see the, uh, U2 in concert. And I, so I, I took her, like, in, in this 
summer at Twickenham. I don't know if you went to that, but I went to that with her. And, uh, you know, we, <laughs> we, we went to it, and she cried the whole way through, and I cried quite a lot, because it made me emotional to see, because it was a Joshua Tree album. The Joshua Tree album is a profoundly healing album, if you ever really want to get into it. It's a very, div- very godly thing. And just because the way it was, I got her t- into the after party. And we were sitting there, and the, the, the idea was that the band were going to come at some stage. The band actually did come, and uh, Bono and the crowd were sitting in the corner, and I went over, and I said... To, I sat down, and Lex wouldn't come near. She was just staring. And I was saying, come on, just come over. And she just wouldn't move. And uh, such was the sort of weight of the presence of the band and Bono. And, and I just said, <laughs> so as they were leaving, I said, Bono, can you do me a favor? Can you just meet a friend of mine? And he said, come on then, you know, where is she? And I said, she's over there. And Lex was still over there. And I said, can you just, come on. And so she came over, like, really awkwardly, agonizingly, meeting her absolute hero. And I said, Lex, this is Bono, I'm sure you know who this is, Lex. Um, and he just put his arms around her and said, hello, you know, how are you? you know, Thanks so much for coming. Did you enjoy the, did you enjoy the gig or whatever? And she sort of went, what did he say? Yeah. And there was this long moment, and she didn't say, I thought maybe she was going to say, you know, what, what underpants do you wear, or where are you going now? Nothing. She's just is silent. And then, so that was it, and he left, and the, and the edge went, they all left. And, uh, and we, chat, <laughs> we chatted for it, and then Lex left. And, uh, and I think it profoundly, hopefully, moved her. I think it was one of her big moments. But what struck me about it was this. Why I'm telling you this story is because she's held him up to be, as he is, a truly wonderful, gifted man who'd, whose music has helped her. But he doesn't know her. He just briefly met her. And he certainly hasn't considered dying for her. And probably wouldn't. And I was talking to the other, you know, the idea is, I'm, what I'm trying to say is, is that we think this much of Bono, or she does, and wouldn't go near him. And I had to persuade her to come near him. And I was talking to a vicar friend the other day, and I imagined this scenario, and I said, have you ever imagined seeing Jesus on a park bench or in a, in a corner? What would you do if you saw him? And he thought and just said, he said, <laughs> I think I'd run. And I said, you'd run? He said, yeah. I said, well, why would you run? He said, well, just, I think I'd just be ashamed. And I said, well, what would you be ashamed of? And he said, you know, just, just stuff. And I said, but you're, you're like a trainee vicar. <laughs> and you're going to be communicating the king of grace, the one who embraces sinners who reject him. Do you understand who he really is? Do any of us really get who he is? If you look at Peter, who denies him, and the next time he sees him, runs to him, because he knows what, how he'll be received. Do we get this man at all? You know, like, do you understand how much... He loves you, that he would die for you, that he's full of grace. So even if he knows that you've got a porn addiction, he will embrace you. If you're struggling with anything, he will embrace you. Do you understand that? Or have you imbibed the Christian ideal, which is you, you've, got to, you've got to be this to be acceptable? That's a, that's a tragedy if you have. Because if you get him, then you're free. But I think we have a strange 
view of him. I heard about a boy called Jesse, this is true, who was four. His older sister was six at the time, and she was struggling, well, not struggling, but she was very, very sick. And so they were going to have to do an operation on her, and she, that sh she was in the surgery and with the parents, and Jesse was there too. And the surgeon was explaining that they needed to do the operation soon, but the dilemma was that her blood group was so rare, they couldn't find anyone to donate. And the only person they had on the list of possibilities was Jesse, who's four. So the story goes that, that uh, the parents said, well, I'm sure it'll be fine. And the surgeon said, well, no, it's not fine, is it? I mean, let, why don't I ask Jesse? And they said, well, <laughs> he's four, and it'll be fine. And he said, no, no, I'll, I'll chat to him. He's here. And so they left Jesse with the surgeon, and they all went and read magazines on the other end of the surgery. And the surgeon apparently said, so Jesse, you know your sister's really sick. And he was like, yeah. And he explained about the operation, how she'd lose blood, how they had to get blood, and how about his blood was the only blood that would, would, would actually work. And then he just said, do you think, Jesse, on this basis, that you would consider giving some of your blood to your sister so she could have the operation? And apparently he sat there with his hands under his knees with the legs swinging on the chair, and he said, can I think about it for like... Can I just have a little think? And he said, sure. So Jesse got off the chair, and he went straight over to the far corner and stared out of the window. And there was this kind of long silence while this four-year-old stares out of the window. And they're all just waiting, clocks ticking, you know, flies are buzzing, everyone's silent. And he turned around and walked back to the surgeon and got on the chair. And the surgeon was pretending to sort of be busy writing out pr prescriptions or whatever he does. And, uh, and he said, the surgeon said, well, have you, have you decided? And Jesse said, yeah. He said, well, can you do it? And he said, yeah. And the surgeon smiled and said, well, well done. That's great. That's great. I'll tell you what. Now that we've decided that, the staff nurses said we could just make a little start now. And Jesse's face apparently went completely white, and his eyes went like 50p pieces. And he stared. And he said, well, now, you can't, you, know, you can't do it now. And the surgeon said, it's okay, you calm, you calm down, it's okay. it's okay. Any reason why now is a bad time? He said, well, yeah, I mean, uh, I, haven't, I haven't said goodbye to my friends or anybody yet. So he'd taken a minute to choose to die for his sister. And he, he made the decision, came back and said, yes, I will do this. Okay, now, when I heard that, I went, <gasps> like that, that's really moving. And yet, paradoxically, when I hear this whole idea that the divine chose to die for me, it doesn't move me that much. Not in the same way. I hate to say it. I wish it did, but it doesn't. Jesse moves me more, just because he's little. And, but if you can grasp that the divine is like that, that the agony of his decision, and he doesn't just, you know, he dies, he dies for us, and that, I find that extraordinarily beautiful when I really think. And that this grace is earned through that. That that's why we can be as we are. That it, it's been hard fought, hard won, hard, hard everything to get to where we are free to just be messy people and embraced. And Augustine, I don't know if you know much about St. Augustine, but he was a rascal, like a naughty, naughty thing. And I, what I love about Augustine most is that he loved carousing. He loved partying. He loved women. He loved sex. He loved alcohol. He liked all that. And he couldn't find a reason for not doing that. 
And his, his argument was, you have to, you'll have to present me with something extraordinarily beautiful to replace that in my life. And the only thing that he could find that was more beautiful, apparently, was the idea that the divine could, could reduce himself to a tiny span and be hung naked on a piece of wood and bleed for him. That he found more beautiful than anything else he'd ever seen. And he said, on that basis, I choose this. And I love that because I, it, the Christian faith has never presented me as beautiful. It's always presented me as sort of legal. You must make these decisions. But beauty really moves me. I mean, artists are moved by beauty. I think humans are. If you can just find this beautiful, it will move you deeply and change you deeply. And you will find yourself accepting yourself because you are. And once you accept yourself because you know, then everything changes. And not accept yourself as the person who is the Christian. I don't even know what that means, frankly. But as the human, with all your intricacies, all your complexities, all your vulnerabilities, all your fears, all the things that go in your head right now about what you're thinking about tomorrow and the person in front of you, and the things that they knew about me now, if they knew what I was thinking or doing, perhaps I wouldn't even be in this room. You should be in this room. This is the right room. This is the room I would call the room of grace. And it's the, it's the room of freedom, and it's the place of, of love. Um, and I think, you know, like, grace, grace healed eyes. I love that idea. There was a, apparently there's a, um, a, a cafe. Uh, I should know, if you read John Steinbeck's book um, uh, called Cannery Row, has anyone read Cannery Row? Have you? Did you like it? It's a beautiful, Steinmet, well done. I love Steinmet. Uh, he's a great writer. Uh, and he wrote this. The first paragraph of Cannery Row is one of the greatest pa opening paragraphs of any book ever written, I think. And this is how it starts. You have to forgive the odd swear word, but here we go. Cannery Row in Monterey, California, is a poem, a stink, a grating noise, a quality of light, a tone, a habit, a nostalgia, a dream. Cannery Row is the gathered and scattered tin and iron and rust and splintered wood. Chipped pavement and weedy lots and junk heaps, sardine canneries and corrugated iron, honky-tonks, restaurants and whorehouses and little crowded groceries and laboratories and flop houses. Its inhabitants are, as the man once said, whores, pimps, gamblers and sons of bitches, by which he meant everybody. Had the man looked through another peephole, he might have said saints and angels and martyrs and holy men, and he'd have meant the same thing. And I remember when I first read that, I just thought, what, what's he alluding to? He's, this peephole is the peephole of grace, that if you look through this public, you will see people differently. You will see people through the eyes of Christ. You will see people not as you, they look to be, but who they really are. And I... I <sighs> I heard a great story um, uh, about a cafe. And the guy who was telling it, was he was a vicar, and he was telling the story about how he went to this cafe every day. And in the cafe, frequented there were prostitutes. So oft, there were often two or three prostitutes drinking coffee in there. And they were all known there, and the cafe owner knew them. And uh, there was one day when, um, when they were all out, and the... the, 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 the priest guy, the pastor, was talking to the cafe and they were chatting and they were actually saying, you know, they're talking about the girls. And yet the, the cafe owner mentioned that actually Jenny, one of the girls, who was at, was, it was her birthday coming up. It was her 19th birthday, I think. And so the vicar said, why don't we just, let's give her a party. Let's bake her a cake. 
And he said, okay. So he turned to the, the four or the five other girls in the cafe and said, should we, let, should we, let's do a cake birthday for Jenny. So they said, okay. So the next day they met when she was out working and they made her the cake and they got the, all the streamers, everything, they got it all together, ready. And so when she, on the day, they did all the cafe up and got the cake. And when she arrived, she came in the door at sort of seven or whatever time it was in the evening. And they were ready and they started singing happy birthday to her. The priest was there, the cafe owner, everybody was there. And he said that she just didn't stare at them and her eyes just welled up and she couldn't move. And she, when the song was over, she, they held the cake out and she blew out the candles. And then she said, do you mind if I take the cake upstairs? And they said, sure, do what you like, it's your birthday. So she took the cake and she went up the stairs into the room and uh, where she, because she had a room up there. And uh, in the time she, she came down later, in the time of her absence, the vicar was talking to the cafe owner and he was saying, well, I hope she's all right and da da da. And uh, the cafe guy said to, to the priest, so you really run a church, do you? And he said, yeah. And he said, you run a church and you... You give birthday parties for prostitutes, do you? And he said, yeah. And he was silent for a long time. He said, well, y you show me a church that gives birthday parties for prostitutes, and I'll be the first one through your doors. And when I heard him say this, I thought, do, would we do that? I hope. We would, and I hope I would, and I hope that we would see people through grace-healed, loving eyes and embrace people. And I have um, a friend I've got to know called Emma, who's a, I live in Brixton, and she's a sex worker, and she's a crack addict, and in winter she freezes, so she comes to my house sometimes. And she's <laughs> she has, we have tea, and uh, she, she has big crack um, things on her face sometimes. Um, and what's strange, the two things that are strange about Emma is, one, is that I genuinely mean this when I say that I've never felt the presence of God more than I have when I sit with her in the kitchen. Like, I can feel, way more than when I'm in church or singing a nice song, I feel Jesus. And maybe that sounds mad to you, but I feel his love and compassion. And the other thing is, when I, have a, I had a nasty split up a year ago, and break up, relational, and... She was there, and she came for tea, and she was making me tea and asking me how I was. And she was saying, God, Charlie, you look terrible. Meanwhile, she's got a crack addiction, and she's a prostitute, and she's emaciated, and she's now in prison for assaulting someone because she needed some money. But the true Emma, the one underneath all that, is a beautiful, beautiful human. Kind, compassionate, loving, everything. And all, I'm just trying to tell you that I think if we can embrace one another like make do birthday parties for each other even though we know we've got addictions even though that we're not the people we should be whether we're sex workers or addicts of any kind or just i think if we just tell the truth of ourselves and allow ourselves to be embraced as we are then we have church then we have freedom then we have nothing but a sense of grace and, you know, religion is cheap. I can get religion anywhere. Grace is not cheap. Grace is hard fought, hard won. Grace is a gift. And grace is hard to live because it actually involves us choosing to embrace 
things that look ugly, including ourselves. But going back to my friends who look at that sculpture, that's what they want. Because there's something in the idea of an everyday man walking and being loved. And if we can reflect that, or we can understand that of ourselves, and I'm standing here, you know, you know and I'm going to leave soon. And as I leave, I know I'll go back to my car and drive, and I'll, I'll, I'll think to myself, you just blared on to people you don't know about love. I, I genuinely mean this. I don't know that I'm loved. I don't really know that I'm forgiven. I would really love to. And it's a journey that I'm on to discover this and to enjoy it and be embraced by friends like Lex and me embrace my friends who maybe through my actions might get a glimpse of this and through the reading the New Testament about this extraordinary person who did the same thing, who happens to be God, which is a relief. So all I'm saying to you, as I was in a very sort of convoluted, strange way, is that... Um, that friendship and grace are the two of the greatest gifts, and they work hand in hand together. And through that, we're changed. Through that, we're free. And through that, we know we're loved. And I don't think I've got anything else to say. I think I'll shut up now. But I might say a prayer, because I don't often pray, but I feel like I'd like to. Um, um, and I'm looking at my notes now. There's nothing else, really, to say. So let's pray. Um, Jesus, you... Uh, uh, you were accused of sitting with the wrong people. You were accused of uh, eating with sinners, which you did, and you, you loved them as your own. That you were surrounded by sinners. You were surrounded and flocked. People flocked to you because you were full of grace. They didn't know what grace was, but it was highly and deeply attractive. And I thank you that you... Um, if. You know, if you were here, we'd, we'd know who you were and we'd recognize the deep grace in you and we'd love to be, be with you. And I pray that grace would seep into our chests, seep into our minds, seep into our hearts, seep into us completely, that we could be graceful towards ourselves primarily to understand you have that for us, that we could then show it to the world, that that grace would extend to give birthday parties to sex, sex workers or birth, anything, just extend it out. And where there's shame in me, shame in all of us, that's what we came 